Yeah, so that just happened. Yeah, you won't believe this. We didn't decide to do that song till Thursday of this week, and Tony and Whitney and the whole band just killed that, did they not? <laughs> Some of you, maybe it's your first time here, and you're leaning over the person next to you going, is that a Christian song? No. <laughs> no. Now, we'll talk about it here in a minute, though. So, hey, um, really, really good to be back with you guys. I've been gone for a little while. Had a men's retreat to do. Took a little time off. Um, things like that. Good to be back with you guys. Had to get a vasectomy while I was gone. That sucked. That was, um, yeah, you, you know, they call it a procedure. That's a major surgery, all right? When I can look you in the eye, I'll tell you some stories about that, but I can't just yet. Hey, um, we, uh, I, got a, I got an announcement for you. We've got, we are this close, within weeks probably, of being able to announce to you when we're going to be opening the West Campus. Very, very excited about that. Yeah. And uh, on top of that, we're going to be continuing to communicate with you guys about volunteer opportunities, things we need to get this thing off the ground and going. And so one of those things is this. We need uh, worship team volunteers who really are going to be committed to that West Campus and really want to get that thing up and up and running. So if you can sing, if you can play instruments, if you can rap on level with Tony, not like, you know me. All right. So, um, you, you need to come audition. We're going to have different auditions, October 29th and 30th. And on November 5th and 6th, the auditions will be here, but they will be for people who will serve at the West campus. And you got to get your application in, which is online flatironchurch.com forward slash worship. And you got to get that in by October 14th. So make sure you do that. All right. Hey, we're kicking off a new series today. And, um, we kind of got this concept, uh, from this thing called neighborhood watch. And the re- the reality is simply this, whether you're talking about New York, whether you're talking about Chicago, LA, Denver doesn't matter what it is. There's a bright side, bright light side of every city that's appealing city of opportunity, man. You can go make it big, but there's also this other side to the city, which is what that song contrasts so well is, which is this like dangerous seedy underbelly that every city has. Every city has the other side of town right now. How many of us, we can honestly say at some point in your life, you've lived on the wrong side of town. Right, I, I've lived on the wrong side of town. And what I've learned about, about that is simply this. Those of, us who, those of us who've lived on the wrong side of town at some point in our lives, we have a higher tolerance for neighborhood issues than those who haven't. All right, So I've lived in Colorado for eight years. And in those eight years, I've been repping the hood of Erie. And um, so <laughs> it's very, boy, it's dangerous over there. And so, um, so I've lived in two different neighborhoods in Erie. And, and, and one of those neighborhoods, the last neighborhood I lived in, the great controversy was over how uh, people from the other side of Erie were sneaking into our neighborhood pool. It's like, this is really important, all right? And, and on top of that, not only were people from the wrong side of Erie sneaking into our neighborhood pool, but those teenagers, man, they, one night, they threw all the pool furniture into the pool. Can you believe it? They called the cops. It was all over Facebook. I mean, it was a huge deal. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, right? I mean, it's like, for those of us, those of us who lived in tougher parts of town, those are not as big of a deal, right? Two occasions in my life, I've lived on the wrong side of town. Once was when I was a kid, we moved from Cincinnati, Ohio, and we moved to Dallas, Texas. My mom moved us there to live with my grandparents. She was going to go to school there. And so um, I stayed with my dad all summer, um, that summer leading up to when I was going to move to Texas. And so they got there before me. And so I flew to Dallas and my mom picked me up at the airport. And then we drove uh, to the neighborhood that we were going to be living in. And I started noticing something as, as we're passing all these houses two things. One is we were right by the airport. No good part of town is ever by the airport, except in our airport, which is in Nebraska. But you know what I'm saying? So I'm noticing all the houses have bars on their windows 
and all the houses have bars on their doors. And so my mom explains to me like, yeah, Scott, so as we live here, you're not going to be able to go outside. You know, it's, it's kind of dangerous. And not only is it dangerous, but it's Dallas, it's 350 degrees. And it's just, it, it, we lived under the flight plat pattern of DFW. So you couldn't hear yourself talk. And so it was a pretty rough neighborhood. And really the only interactions I remember having with anybody throughout the time that we lived in that neighborhood was one day we woke up and there was a ladder outside of my mom's window. Somebody had tried to break in. Our neighbors had all been robbed at least twice in the two years that we lived there. And people attempted to rob us on multiple occasions. And we found a, a ladder under the window and our neighbor's wallet under the ladder. And so we were like, oh, that's his name. So we took his wallet, went next door and went, hi, nice to meet you. Here's your wallet. You got robbed last night and they tried to rob us too. So the only other thing I really remember about interacting with neighbors in that neighborhood was this. There was an alleyway uh, behind the house. I actually remember once picking up a hypodermic needle in the alleyway. My mom told me to drop it. Like I didn't know what it was. And behind the alley was another house. They had this Doberman that hated children. All right. And the, the lady asked my mom if she could borrow me to help train the Doberman not to hate children. I'm not, I'm not making this up. I kid you not. And my mom, she goes to this church to find her and address this with her said yes. All right. So, so on Saturdays I'm over there going, mom, I don't want to get bit by the dog anymore. You're going, you know, it's like, what, why are we doing this? And so that was the, the first occasion of living on the wrong side of town. Later in my life, I moved back to Cincinnati to go to college. And those of us who've lived in Cincinnati, we call it Cincinnati because the Ohio river is nasty and it smells really, really bad. And so I lived in this town called Price Hill, right in the inner city of Cincinnati. If you ever saw the movie Traffic, they filmed all the drug dealing um, part scenes of that movie in that neighborhood where I went to school. And so we lived in this house, me and about 25 guys lived in a house with one bathroom. It was gross. That's just how you roll in college. And I was walking home from school one day from class and I go into the house, I sit down in the recliner to watch a movie. And then a little while later, one of my roommates comes in and, and he says this, he says, Hey, did you see did you see the, the middle school age kids out front making out in our driveway? I'm like, no, I didn't. They must have got there after I, after I came in here. So I've become a grumpy old man. I go out there and sure enough, there's these kids like not just kissing, like rolling around in our driveway. And I, I'm a grumpy old man. Get off my lawn, you know? And so I yell at them. They take off running and they disappear for a while. Well, a few hours later, I'm still in the recliner because that's what I did in college. I watched Braveheart every day. That's what I did. And so I, I'm watching, I'm sure it was Braveheart. And another one of my roommates, another one of my roommates walks in and goes, Hey, did you see the people across the street on a, on a car making out? I'm like, Oh, you got to be kidding me. I'm going to do something about this. And then I uttered these words that I lived to regret. Give me the BB gun. And yeah, so we had a BB gun because one of my roommates got a Red Rider BB gun for Christmas. He's 22 years old. Who gets a Red Rider? Anyway, so we got it. We got this red. So they get, we had it mounted on the, above the fireplace. <laughs> he, he went and, get, and grabbed it. And all my roommates are used to seeing me do stupid stuff. They're all like, yes, give him the gun. And so they give me the gun and they all go to the front room because they're going to watch what's going to happen. And I go to the front door and I, I, I open the front door, crack it open. And they're all in the front room. And sure enough, I see this guy. He's got his back to me and the, his, his girl sitting on the, on the trunk of the car and they're kissing. And I'm like, Oh, this is it, man. They, they came back. They should have listened to me. And so I take aim and I'm going to be nice. So I'm just going to hit him in the leg. He's wearing baggy jeans. It probably won't even hurt at all. And so I aim and I'm, I'm a good shot. I'm from Kentucky. And so I, I shoot and, and, and I hit him in the leg, but he's so into what he's doing and his jeans are so baggy. He doesn't feel it. And so I'm like, all right, now, now we got to play hardball. All right. And so, so I, I raise the sights and I don't know if anybody's ever walked up behind you and smacked you right in the small of the back. Like that stings a BB really hurts. All right. And so, so I tell him, I'm going to get him in the small of the back. So I fire and I shut the door real fast. And then I hear everybody in the front room go, Oh, 
It's like, sweet, I got him, got those middle school kids. And then I hear one of my roommates go, oh, crap. Like, what? He's like, Scott, that wasn't those middle school kids. That was the neighbor kissing his girlfriend goodnight, and he's on his way over. <laughs> like, needless to say, relationships were strained from that point on. And we've all had those moments with neighbors. Maybe you didn't shoot yours like I did, but um, <laughs> where, where neighboring relationships get really, really strained and neighbors don't really care about one another. In fact, the, the premise of this series, this whole thing called Neighborhood Watch, that's something we stole from the thing called Neighborhood Watch, right? Which is a system that was born almost 50 years ago now as a reaction to some really shocking facts involving the rape and murder of a young woman in New York City. And some of you, if you took a sociology course or even a psychology course in college or whenever, maybe you read Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point or maybe you read the New York Times article years ago about this. Um, but people were shocked to find out that when this woman was raped and murdered somewhere between 12 on the low end and 38 witnesses on the high end saw this happening and did absolutely what nothing and as the nation became aware of it they they created this thing called the neighborhood watch system saying hey if we're going to be neighbors let's look out for one another and let's report suspicious activity and stuff like that well probably Jesus's most second most famous story that he ever told. I would say the first most famous story Jesus ever told the story of the prodigal son. Second to that is this story that centers on this idea of being a neighbor. And it's just become a part of our vernacular. Like we, we've named like thousands and thousands of hospitals after it. We've all heard the phrase, it's the good what? Samaritan, right? And the ironic part is this, Jesus didn't name the story of the Good Samaritan. People came along later and named it that because of its content. But to Jesus's listeners, if you would have put the words good and Samaritan next to each other, they would have said, that's an oxymoron. That doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a Good Samaritan because Jewish people and Samaritans hated one another because they had this long history of hate. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the nation of Israel was invaded and most of the people were taken cap- into captivity into neighboring countries. A few people were left behind, a few Jewish people, and When the nation of Israel returned to their homeland, they found out that those who were left behind began to marry with people from other countries and they started to worship false gods. Those people became known as the Samaritans and they were viewed as half-breeds and they were hated. And so Jesus tells this story about people who lived in proximity with one another who absolutely hated one another. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and go to the book of Luke chapter 10. Pick it up in verse 25. We're going to live in this story for the next several weeks. We're going to go real slow through it and as you're kind of getting there, if you don't have your Bibles, plot your programs, it'll be in there. Uh, let me kind of set the stage for you and catch you up as to where we are in this epic series about Jesus that we've been in. You see, up until this point, Jesus has kind of been kind of operating in the northern end of the kingdom. And now he's in the southern end down in Judea. And he's slowly and methodically making his way to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be crucified. And on this day, he's in this famous town, near this famous town called Jericho. And if you're like me and you grew up going to Sunday school, you've heard about Jericho a whole lot. And so he's approaching the final year of his ministry and he tells this story. And what I want to do is I just want to read the whole story to you today. And then we're going to back up and we're just going to look at a couple verses today and kind of break those apart. And then we'll do that week after week. All right. So let's get the whole story, get the whole picture, and then we'll take it real, real slow. Here we go. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I'll repay, repay you when I come back. Which, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. <laughs> Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, whether you've heard this story a thousand times or 10,000 times, or you, this is the first time you've actually heard the story, here's the deal. For those of us who've heard the story a thousand times, we have a lot of things to unlearn. And I can just speak for myself. I, I think I've heard this story preached incorrectly most of my life. It's been taught to me wrong. And for those of us who've never heard the story before, that's cool because you get to, you get to hear this, I hope, the right way today because I learned some new stuff about this story just this past week. And I've, again, I've, I've done the deal, man. I've gone to church, gone to Bible college, been preaching for a long, long time. And I learned something I'd never known. See, Jesus actually patterned this story after an actual event in Jewish history. It's found in this, this little known book called Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. I know you guys all been reading Second Chronicles lately and you're very familiar with this. And in chapter 28, I had to look it up. I'm like, I don't even know what this is. In chapter 28, it talks about how uh, the nation of Israel at this point in their history, they were in a civil war, north versus south. Our nation can resonate with that. Northern kingdom captures 200,000 men, women, and children from the southern kingdom. And then they, their intent is to take them to the center of the country where Samaria is. And in Samaria, they're going to mistreat them and they're going to enslave their own people that they're at war with. And it's the Samaritans who say, no, you can't do this. You cannot do this to your own people. Look at how this plays out. See if this seems familiar to you after having just read the Good Samaritan. Look at this. So armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. This is in Samaria. And the men who had been mentioned by name in previous verses rose and took the captives. And with the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, anointed them, and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk where? Jericho, right, right where Jesus is standing. Why is he telling this story? The city of palm trees. Then they returned to where? Samaria. Does that sound familiar? See, here's the interesting thing. Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan to a whole bunch of people who should have known this story from the Old Testament, Second Chronicles, including the guy who sparked this whole conversation, the attorney who kicked this whole thing off. He's a lawyer. He's supposed to know the Old Testament law and stories backwards and forwards. They all would have been very familiar with the story where the unlikely heroes are a bunch of Samaritans, a bunch of hated people. So here's the thing as we dive in today, you got to understand there are two ways to read this story. This, and one of those ways is dangerous and wrong. And the other way to read it is right and helpful. We're going to try to go the right and helpful route today, because here's the deal. At first glance, it seems really simple, doesn't it? So a dude asks Jesus a question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells a story about being a good neighbor. And so then we could conclude from that. Why wouldn't we just go, okay, so I understand the deal. If I want to go to heaven one day, all I have to do is be really nice to people, be a really good neighbor. And one day God's going to welcome me into heaven for being just like Mr. Rogers while I was here on earth. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were a great neighbor. Come on in to heaven. That would be the wrong way to read the story. It's inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. 
The right way to read this story would be through the filter of this phrase that I keep bringing back to you over and over again. Every story whispers his name. And I would say this story shouts his name. What I mean by that is this. This story is a dramatic foreshadowing on the day that Jesus was speaking for everybody listening. And for us, looking back, it's a picture being painted of what Jesus has done for you and me. Right? I mean, think about this. This Time out for a second. Let me paint the picture for you. See if this sounds familiar. I know someone else who was as good as dead because of mistakes that he made, mistakes others made against him, ended up in a ditch, unable to help himself. And while he was unable to help himself at just the right time, someone came to him and paid the price in order for him to be healed and bound up his wounds and brought him from death to life. That someone is me. And the person who came for me is named Jesus. Can you see it now? See, this story, if there's ever a story in the New Testament that illustrates the truth that Jim and I keep coming back to over and over again from Romans 5, 6 through 8, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, you know the verse, as soon as we put them on the screen, you go, yeah, we've heard this a thousand times in here. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God, beautiful words, shows his love for us in that while we were still, give me the word sinners Christ died for us while we were still helpless while we were in a ditch on the side of the road Jesus came to us and he died for us you see this attorney he asked Jesus two questions in the story and it's important to match up the answers with the questions throughout the story he says what do I have to do to inherit eternal life and who is my neighbor those are his two big questions tonight we're just going to look at just that first question what do I have to do to inherit eternal life so back up look at verse 25 and behold A lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So we got to understand his motivation before we go any further. What's it say his motivation was? Did he want to learn anything from Jesus? Was he humbly coming to Jesus going, I actually want to have a dialogue about this. I want to understand better. Or did he already think he had things figured out? His motivation, it says, was, was to test Jesus, which literally translates to trap Jesus. His motivation is not to learn something from Jesus. His motivation is to teach Jesus a lesson. So he asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question we've all asked. I don't know, maybe, am I the only one who's ever lied awake at night in a cold sweat trying to fathom this idea of eternity? And the, am I the only one who's laid awake at night, unable to sleep, restless, turning over and over and over again, because I'm just wrestling with those questions of, is there really life after death? How could I possibly ever get to go to heaven? Things like that. I think we've all had those moments, whether we've tried to busy ourselves and ignore that thought process, whether we've tried to numb it away, whatever it is, there's been at least a couple points in our life where it's inescapable. You ask the question, what do I have to do to get to live forever, to get to go to heaven, whatever that is. So we've all asked the question. But this guy's asking the question from the perspective of he thinks he's got it all figured out. He just wants to see if Jesus has it figured out as well. Now, for those of us in the room that you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you know the Bible a little bit or a lot. Let me ask you this. Do do you see anything wrong with this question? See anything fundamentally wrong with it? The answer would be everything is wrong with this question. 
Everything is wrong with it. Uh, People ask it to Jesus all the time. Rich guy comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? We ask the question all the time, but there's something wrong fundamentally with this question. See, the question indicates that if I try hard enough, if I work hard enough, if I do enough good things, if I do the right thing, then I can earn my way into a relationship with God and earn my way into heaven. And if I just have the right resume, I'll be in good shape. And if anybody should have known better, it was this guy who stood up to test Jesus on this day. Because this guy had the Old Testament memorized frontwards to back. And the Old Testament did not teach him that if you just work hard enough, that'll be enough for God. That's not what the Old Testament teaches. He should have known what Isaiah 64, 6 said, which is this. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts, hang on to that phrase, are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. I want you to notice something. Before he ever talks about our sin, he talks about the good stuff we do. He says, all our righteous acts, you want to know what those are like? They're like filthy rags. Do you really want to know how that literally translates? I'm going to tell you anyway, used menstrual cloths. So that's the picture that he's trying to paint. All your righteous acts, they may look great compared to him, great compared to her, great compared to people around you, but you compare the good things you do to the one holy, true, perfect God, man, you might as well pile up a bunch of filthy rags and expect that to be your resume. And God, based on that, to go, yeah, come on in. Based on that beautiful display, come on into my kingdom. Come on into a relationship with me. You see, this attorney should have known that, but he's still living under the illusion that many of us live under, which is this, that being good and doing good is good enough for God. Maybe you're living under that illusion right now because, man, I talk to Christians all the time who seem to think that their relationship with God is somehow based on their performance on whether they're being good or not. See, even if you go back to the original question, you can see the inconsistencies in it. What, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You inherit something based on a relationship, not based on a performance. But this guy, he doesn't view God that way. He doesn't see God that way. He doesn't see God in a relational sense. This guy, maybe, maybe you're like him. I've been this way in my life. Maybe he primarily views God, maybe you do too, through the lens of, I got to perform, man. I got to like live up to his expectations and his standards. I've got to prove myself to God. I've got to impress God. And by the way, that's an exhausting way to live. And not only is it exhausting, it's impossible. It's not possible to impress God. How how could I impress God? Me, the one he created, impress the creator. I mean, I might be able to do something that makes him smile or something he approves of or something like that. But for God to look at me and go, wow, Scott, I'm impressed. Show me again. Do do that that again, Scott. It's not going to happen. See, this lawyer thinks that as long as he keeps the law that he so diligently studies, he's going to be in good shape. So here's what's interesting. If I were Jesus, I would just blow this guy up. All right. You may have picked up on that. Me and Jesus are different. All right. And so I would have just like blown up his argument, like said, bro, you're coming from all the wrong perspective. Your questions jacked up like you're such an idiot. I can't believe that they let you be a lawyer. Like I would have just done that. Okay, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is going to play along with this guy. And here's what I suspect based on what I know about Jesus. I I think Jesus is after this guy's heart. I think he really cares about this guy. And so so Jesus plays along. Look, at this. He, he said to him. What is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, you're the expert. You're the expert. 
What does it say? And this guy loves to talk. And so he obliges Jesus. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And here's the thing. He's not saying anything new. He's not saying anything revolutionary. He's saying the same thing that all Jewish people knew. He's saying the same thing that Jesus said when people asked Jesus this question. People used to come up to Jesus all the time and go, what, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus would always say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He, he, Jesus said, if you want to sum up all the law and commandments, it's as simple as this. Love God, love people. It's very, very simple. Love God, love people. This guy's getting the right answer. He's doing a great job. And Jesus affirms it. Look at this. Verse 28. Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Do this. You got it. Ding, 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 ding. Good for you. You win the prize. Now just go do that perfectly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know, it's interesting. You know how all literally translates all, (laughs) all your heart, meaning always, all the time, all your soul, always, all the time, all your mind, always, all the time, all your strength, always and all the time, perfectly do that. And you will be entitled. You will have earned your way into heaven. God will welcome you in. See, Jesus is doing something we talk about around here all the time. He's just putting the two deals on the table. He's saying here, Here's deal number one. You be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He says that previously. Just be perfect. That's deal number one. If you can do that, you're in great shape. Got to welcome you in. That's called the law. That's deal number one. And it's a, it's a bad deal. Because why? Because can anybody pass that test? Again, we talk about this all the time. I can't live up to my own standards, much less God's. I'm not, I've not been, I, I can't love anybody all the time perfectly without fail or flaw. Can you? Nobody's ever done that. Nobody ever can do that. Nobody will live perfectly their entire life. And that's just loving God, much less neighbors, right? Loving people perfectly all the time as yourself. Anybody pass that test? Anybody? Oh, see, this is a bad deal. And Jesus is trying to expose that this is a bad deal. And this guy picks up on it. And we're going to get into that a little bit next week. But what I want to do today is I just, I just want to spend the rest of our time asking a simple question. How do you know if you're taking a bad deal? How, how do you know if you're living under the law? How do you know if you're taking deal number one? How do you know if you're like this lawyer living under the illusion that you can be good enough for God? And what I want to do is I just want to ask some really intrusive, invasive, uncomfortable questions to get us there. You're like, awesome. That's what I was hoping for today. The first one's not a trick question. It's not even that invasive or intrusive. First one, show of hands. How many of us in the room would say, I'm trying to be a good person? Not a trick question. I I promise. I'm not going to yell at you later for raising your hand. All right. Most of us raise our hand, not all of us. And we'll talk about why not all of us here in a minute. But let me ask this. What's your motivation for trying to be a good person? Why are you doing that? Because what I've learned based on conversations with people is this. Most people's thought process goes like this. I'm trying to be a better person because one day at my funeral, I want people to talk about what a good person I was. And when I stand before God, what I'm going to say to him is basically, I tried. Tried my best to be a good person. And based on that, if God is fair, he'll let me in. That's how most of us are banking our life. See, we're obsessed with this idea of fair, are we not? Jim said a couple weeks ago, little kids' first words are often, no, they're evil, they're terrible, all right? If that's their first word, their first phrase is usually this, that's not fair. 
Maybe it's just my kids. <laughs> I don't think so, though. So here's my question. Do, do we want God to treat us fair? Should we stomp our feet in front of God and say, I want what's fair? Let's just play that out for a second. Go with that for a second. Because what I'm going to spell out for you is what the Bible says is fair. Now, you may not like this. You may disagree with that. That's fine. That's between you and God. But the Bible says, if you want fair, great. Here's, here's what it is. All right. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, again, means all. That means me. That means you. It's a very inclusive word. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We can't live up to our own standards, much less God's. There's God's glory. There's God's standards. That's way up here. We're somewhere else. Well short of that. What caused you to fall short versus what caused me to fall short left us both short of God's standard, okay? Now, the Bible says what is fair is this, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. The payment, what's fair, leaves us in a really bad spot. And I fear that most of us, we're counting on God to be fair, but not based on a comparison of ourselves to God, but because we're banking our lives on a comparison to one another, but that's not the comparison that the Bible makes. See, here's the next question that I, help, I think will help us filter this out. Instead of comparing yourself to God, do you spend time comparing yourself to other people? Again, am I the only one? I doubt it. See, we, lo- we love being graded on the curve, don't we? Didn't you love that in school when you had a professor or teacher who graded on the curve? And that's what we want God to do. We want God to grade on the curve. And there's some of us who are, who are not as nice as others. And so those of us who are not as nice as others, we want to be the curve setter. So the way this operates is this. So, so it's like, okay, God, here's the way I want you to work. Okay. What would be fair would be this. Everybody as good as me or better goes to heaven. Everybody not as good as me go to hell. That's the way, that's the way some of us who are not as nice in the room operate. Now, some of us are more generous. And so we go, no, no, no. We want somebody really awful to be the curve setter, right? Like we want really low bar that we can all get over. So it's like, okay, so the curve setter, God, if you want to be fair, the curve setter needs to be someone like, I don't know, Hitler, right? So, so like we, we go, okay, Hitler. Well, okay. So we take great comfort in, you know what? I, I, I'm not near as bad as him. Everybody better than Hitler in everybody as bad as Hitler or worse out. Okay. And, and so that's the kind of thought process we, we have, right? So on one end of the spectrum, you got people who are really, really good. You got like mother Teresa over there and we're like, well, I'm not as good as her, but Hey, got Hitler over here. I'm doing all right. I'm somewhere in the middle, Right. So this next phrase that I'm going to say, some of you are going to email me before I even finish saying it, all right? It's going to, it's going to bother some of you, and, and it should bother a lot of us. And you can email me all, all you want, just bring the Bible when you do and prove me otherwise. But here, here's the phrase, all right? What if I said it's actually quite possible, based on the way that God operates, for someone as good as Mother Teresa to go to hell and someone as bad as Hitler to go to heaven? How would that settle with you? What would you say to that? Would you say, that's not fair? You, you're, you're right. I agree. You, you're right. But let, let me give you an example of perhaps... See, Jesus is really interesting. He, he hangs out with people who know they're lost and broken and they're sinful and they desperately need him. He hangs out with people like that a lot. And as he does that, religious people come and condemn him and accost him and yell at him and call him names and try to trap him like this lawyer did on that day. And he was always harsher with the religious people and more gentle with people who knew they were sinful and broken. And so it didn't seem fair to the religious people. Let me, let me show you the most unfair thing I think that Jesus has ever done. Okay. On the day that Jesus was crucified, 
He's hanging there on a cross. He's been beaten. He's been bludgeoned. He's been tortured. He's going to die within a few hours. He's hanging on a cross, slowly suffocating as his lungs fill up with fluid. Okay. On each side of him are two other people going through a very similar process, hanging on crosses. They're criminals. And this is how this little scenario plays out. Look at this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? You're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You know what that is? Not fair. Let's be honest. Let's take the gloves off. To a lot of us in the room, that's offensive. You know why? Because we've gone to church a lot and this guy didn't have to go once. (laughs) Right? Right? He didn't have to go at all. And Jesus just says, you get to come to heaven with me. This guy can't do anything. He's going to be dead soon. He... This guy can't get off the cross, become a good person. This guy can't go be a boy scout. He can't go to church. He can't pay penance. He can't make confession. He can't help little old ladies across the street. He can't try to even the score. There is no from this point on for this person because the next point after this one is death. He's totally helpless, unable to do anything for himself. And Jesus does a good thing for him. Does that sound familiar? Leads me to the last question I want to ask you today, which is this. What, what do you think God's looking for in you and out of you? What do you think he's looking for? If you said he's looking for, you know, like how good or bad I am based on the things that I've done, you'd actually be right. But that whole Romans 3.23 thing kind of blows that up when we go, but compared to the holy, one, true, perfect God, I'm way desperately short of that. See, that's the comparison that matters. It's not comparison to Mother Teresa. It's not a comparison to Hitler. It's a comparison to God that matters. So what do you think God's looking for out of you? Do you think he's looking for effort? Are you counting on God giving you an A for effort one day? Is that what we're going to bank our lives on? I tried. I tried really hard. Okay, that's good enough. I talk to people all the time. This is their rationale. You know what? I try to keep the Ten Commandments. As long as I keep the Ten Commandments, I think, I think I'll be okay with God. Really? I mean, it is a low bar, let's be honest. Don't worship rocks, don't murder each other, let his wife be his wife, you keep your wife as your wife, you know. But let's be honest, even for those of us who've kept all that on an external basis, here's what Jesus does. He comes along and blows it all up. He goes, oh, okay, so um, those of you, you, you haven't committed murder, but have you ever been angry with anybody? Oh, that's just as bad, just so you know. Uh, okay, so you haven't committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after anybody who's not your, your wife or husband? Oh, that, that's the same thing. It's just as bad. And we just go, well, crap. <laughs> Who could pass that test? And the answer is no one. That's precisely Jesus's point. You can't pass the test. You can't. So if it's your resume that you think God is interested in, what do you think needs to be on the resume for God to go, wow, that's impressive. Come on in. See, if anybody on the face of the earth outside of Jesus could have banked on their resume as something to lean their life against, something to have faith in, 
would have been this guy who wrote most of the New Testament. His name is the Apostle Paul. He wrote this little letter to a church in Philippi while he was in jail. It's called Philippians in your New Testament. And he starts reflecting on his resume at one point. And he says this, though I myself, I, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I got more. He's bragging right here. He's going, if anybody thinks they can bank on how good they are on the outside, Man, I I can bank on it way more than you. He's bragging about it right now. Watch what he says. He's like, I'm a good Jewish person. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to right, this is a mind-blowing statement. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Who, Who could be brave enough to say that? As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let me put it in our terms. I was born into a Christian home. I went to Christian school. I never missed church. I studied the Bible. I was a good person. I was obeying God at every turn. And on the outside, I had it all together. I had it going on. So if anybody could make a case for saying, I don't need Jesus. I got to have faith in my resume and in my good works based on all the external things, all my qualifications, it would have been the apostle Paul. Yet he didn't leave it there. He keeps talking about his resume. Watch this. But whatever gain, all that stuff on the resume I had, I counted as loss. He traded it for something else for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered. He's in prison right now. The loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Hang on to that word in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul talks about his resume in these terms. All those good things that I did, everything I had working in my favor, you know what it is? Rubbish. And in the Greek, it's the word skubalon. We've talked about it before. It's a profane word used to describe profane things. It means excrement. It means dung. It means crap. Paul is simply echoing what Isaiah had said many years before him when he said all that righteous stuff, all the stuff on the resume, filthy rags, man. Filthy rags. It's a pile of crap. Well, let's be honest. I mean, going to church, trying to be a better person, obeying the rules, all that, that's all, that, those are good things to do and good can come from that. But here's what Paul is saying. If you're expecting those things to provide you with the righteousness that you so desperately need, you might as well pile up a bunch of crap and expect God to see it as righteousness. It'll be just as effective. See, Paul's saying, I could have had faith in all my good works, but instead I chose rather to have faith in Jesus. The way he said it was this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He said he was blameless under the law, but now he's saying, but I didn't have any righteousness from that. I didn't have what I needed from that. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from who? From God that depends on faith. So here's the answer to the question. You know what God's looking for in you and in me? righteousness that's terrifying you know why because righteousness means being being thinking feeling and doing the right thing as god defines it all the time being thinking feeling and doing the right thing as god defines it not 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 on how i define it how you define it all the time and i can't produce that in myself 
I don't have that level of righteousness. You don't have that righteousness of your own. You need someone to give you their righteousness. You have wounds like I have wounds, deep ones. You have flaws like I have flaws, obvious ones and less obvious ones. You are like me. You are helpless and you need someone to come along and give you something that you don't have. Someone like this. For our sake, him, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. That's a better deal. All my sin, all my shame, all that's been weighing me down gets put on Jesus. All of his righteousness gets put on me. That's a better deal. That's a way better deal. But so many of us, we're like the lawyer in this story and we still take deal number one. And here's the thing. If you live your life embracing deal number one, all kinds of awful hellish things will follow on this earth. See if this describes any of our lives. You live constantly comparing yourself to other people. You live in self-righteous judgment of others because it makes you feel better about yourself. Or you swing on the pendulum and instead you live in self-hatred and despair because you feel like you could never be as good as them. You live as a slave thinking that it's your resume is what gets you to heaven instead of a relationship. You work and you grind and perhaps the biggest indicator that you're taking a bad deal is that spiritually speaking, you're exhausted. You are exhausted. Or maybe, you know what? You just give up. Maybe you're the one who goes, yeah, Scott, when you asked who's trying to be a better person, I didn't raise my hand. I gave up on that a long time ago. You've taken on the identity of your actions. I do bad, horrible things, so I must be bad and horrible, so I'll just keep doing bad and horrible things. You gave up trying to be a good person a long time ago. That's deal number one. If I had to distill it down, the law, deal number one, is a religious deal. And religion always leads to one of two places, pride or despair. Talk about this all the time. See, religion functions differently for different people. So for some of us, we get the rules. That's what religion is. Here's the list of rules. Here's the things to do and not to do. Follow that and you'll be fine, okay? So some of us get that and we go, check, 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 check. I'm awesome. We get very prideful. Some of us, we get the list of rules and we go, uh, broke that one, broke that one, broke that one twice, broke that one twice before I even read that one. Um, and then we feel terrible. We live in despair. See, religion only leaves those two options on the table, pride or despair. That's deal number one. There's a much better deal on the table and Jesus offers it and it's called grace. It's called grace and it's the furthest thing from fair that you could possibly imagine. Grace is what that guy on the cross next to Jesus was given, even though you know what he deserved? Exactly what he was getting. Death, punishment, and condemnation. You know what a guy who walks down an alley, the worst road in the worst part of town by himself deserves? To get robbed and left for dead. What did he get? In his greatest time of need, when he couldn't help himself, someone came to him and at great cost to themselves, saved him. That's deal number two. It's a better deal. Grace means being given a gift when what you deserve is punishment. And here's what I'm wrestling with. This is really, this, this has been wrecking me for the past couple of weeks, just so you know. And so you guys are going to have to watch me process this again next week. See, I really believe, I, I, I live my life with the knowledge that I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus by no work of my own. 
only because of what Jesus has done for me, not because I could ever do something for myself. I live my life that way with that understanding. But I also, if I'm honest with you guys, I also live my life as if, okay, now it's my turn. I live my life trying to earn what I've already been given, trying to pay God back for a gift. And maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think that I am. We're going to dive deeper into this thing called grace next week, because here's what I'm convinced of as we're in this series called Neighborhood Watch. Before we ever get to what it looks like to be a good neighbor, to truly love our neighbor, that's going to be a very good thing when we get to that place. But we've got to get the order right. Before we can ever talk about truly loving our neighbor, we have to understand how truly loved by God we are. If we get that wrong, our motivations will be all in the wrong place. Joe, one of our worship leaders, he led our staff in this old, old hymn a few weeks ago. I hadn't heard it in years. It's, it's called Grace Greater Than Our Sin, and it's an amazing song. I, it took me right back to being a little kid in my grandparents' Baptist church when I heard it. And what I want you to do as the band sings this song is I just want you to sit. And I just want you to let these words wash over you. There's an invitation in this song, and maybe some of you need to respond to this invitation today. But what I want you to do is do that. And I also want you to look for my favorite line in the song, which is simply this marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Marvelous, causing great wonder, extraordinary grace, infinite, limitless, endless, impossible to measure or calculate grace, matchless, unable to be equaled, incomparable grace, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. I think we got our toe in the water this week. We're going to dive in head first next week. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for every person in this room who came in weighed down and burdened by their shame and by their guilt and by their sin. Every person in this room has been living with a really bad deal, trying to earn our way into your approval, trying to earn our way into a relationship with you, just trying to get you to say we're okay. We're trying to do a bunch of good stuff that maybe you'll finally one day say, okay, that's good enough. God, we just feel like we're on a treadmill and we're just overwhelmed and it's exhausting and we just... We've come to the realization we can't do it. God, I pray for every person in this room that had that sense when they walked in here that they'll walk out of here with an extraordinary sense of your marvelous, infinite, matchless grace and how great your love is for us and that your grace is greater than our sin. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.